This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave D. Boat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is it. Um, you know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. Hello, you're listening to Buffalo What's Next, where we are having real conversations about racism and the practices that led to the Tops Massacre and what can be done to remedy the situation. Thank you for joining us. I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. We're joined today by Nanette Massey, local author and host of the Sunday webinar, White Fragility, Beyond the White Echo Chamber. Nanette, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, of course. Um, it's been a difficult time for the black community. How mm-hmm. how are you? Um, well, it is hard to describe how I am honest, how I'm feeling honestly, because I live a half mile away from that supermarket, and um, you know it was later it was later brought out that his his plan, if he'd gotten past the supermarket, you know, was to ride up Jefferson Avenue shooting at people. And I live a half mile away from there. And I used to, when I was younger, and I heard people, I heard in history class, we talked about uh, lynchings and other indiscriminate acts of violence and unfairness towards black people. I used to wonder, how did black people just walk around living when all of that was going on? And how did white people see that going on and go to church on Sundays? And I have my answer to that now. And that is, it's a, it is a delicate balance of ambivalence uh, between hope and absolute fury. And um, for black people, you know, people were asking me, you know, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? I said, you know what? There'll be another one soon. I can't afford to break down. Right. I can't. I got to hold it together for the next one. Right. Uh, so it it doesn't mean I don't care or I'm not feeling it. But like I said, it's it's a delicate, ambivalent balance between fury and hope that this could be better. I think that there's, you know, there is this sense that you can't, you can't break down because you need to be strong. You need to continue to be strong and ready (laughs) ready for the next Mm -hmm. thing, Mm -hmm. the next thing that's coming at you. Um, Let's talk about, so... Was that the tops that you went to? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I tell people I am literally in that store two, sometimes three times a day. You know, I'm a big girl. I like to eat. <laughs> so I'll go in there once and I'll say, okay, I'm buying lean chicken, broccoli, carrots. I'm going to do this. And then I go home. And then, oh, I forgot the onion. So I run up there, grab an onion, go home. And two hours later, I'm like, Nanette, you know you wanted the ruffles and the bison chip there. Why don't you just... <laughs> just go back. Why don't you just go home? <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, I'm literally, it is not unusual for me to be in there two or three times a, a day. The manager, David, you know, he, he's, he says, hey, how are you doing? Knows me by name, gives me a big hug, asks me how the disc in my back is doing. 
um, have the neighbors upstairs quieted down. He remembers all of that stuff. Right. Uh, the night manager, Kurt, uh, we call him Captain Kurt. He hates it, but we do it anyway. And, uh, you know, people in the store that, hey, how you doing, Miss Nanette? And, and there, uh, there's a whole cast of characters that hang out in around the front of the supermarket, mm-hmm. such as uh, Grady, mm-hmm. who is getting a lot of media attention. You know, I, I, I'm not surprised that he was there the day before when the kid came and he ended up having an hour and a half conversation with him on the bench. I'm not surprised. That's what Grady does. He hangs out there for hours a day. And God bless him, because some days um, I can't uh, carry the groceries out to my car. He'll do it for me and he'll put it in my trunk. Right. And when I say I'm there two or three times a day, it's not it's not hyperbole. And it's not it's not simply and solely a grocery store. It's really not. It, and it's a it's a it's a community gathering place. And I did not really appreciate it as such until I heard people talking about it in the news because I have internet at home, so I do everything online that you would do at the customer service desk, mm-hmm. you know, at Tops. Um, when I'm looking for something a little more fancy schmancy, I can get in my car and I can go to Wegmans, you know, or out to Whole Foods, mm-hmm. you know, out in the burbs. Um, but for a lot of people, yeah, they're, they're, you know, it's a population of people that uh, are disproportionately absent of automobiles. <laughs> right. So for a lot of people, that is their drugstore. It's where they go to pay the bills. It's where they go to do Western Union to send some money to their nephew in Charlotte. And while I'm here, let me pick up some chicken, some turkey, some fish, and some Ruffles potatoes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Don't forget the Ruffles. You know, it's all, you know, it, and I, I, until I started really hearing people talk about it like that, I didn't realize what an important resource. Well, no, I wouldn't say I didn't realize it, but I have a new appreciation appreciation for, for what an important resource it is yeah. and also um um when i first moved back here in 2017 i lived in atlanta for, i'm here i'm originally from here mm-hmm. shout out to city honors go centaurs uh, <laughs> i moved to atlanta and i lived in uh, atlanta for 25 years and i moved back here in 2017 and mm-hmm. That supermarket was right up the street from me, and it was having a lot of customer service issues. The service there wasn't great, and um, and uh, and then, like I said, I've got a back issue, so I wasn't trying to be at a supermarket where I had to wait in line for forty minutes to, to buy one item. Right. So it was, you know, sometimes it was easier for me to get in my car and drive to Wegmans. <laughs> so I just yep. did. Yeah. Um, but I started to realize, because um, I have a, a unit for rent upstairs at my house. And I realized that having a supermarket within walking distance to my house ups the value of my rental unit. It absolutely does. So I said, girl, you need to go on down there and, you know, buy your chicken and your ruffles from there because this, you know, this supermarket actually, it means money for you. Right. You know, it adds value to my house, to the location of my house. On top of, you know, the manager, David, just being a nice guy. And, and Captain and all, Kirk. And Captain Kirk, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see the tragic events as a way now to have that no-holes-barred conversation about racism? I I wish I could say yes. What's stopping you from when saying yes? When the 97 though? Rock Rob Liederman toast Barry, Holly Berry incident happened. Yes. I thought, here's our chance. Um, when the, the black kid who was playing junior hockey and uh, out in the suburbs, and the opposing team was uh, giving him monkey jeers. Mm-hmm. I thought that was our chance. And both of those, in both of those instances, the powers that be were just in a hurry to sweep it under the rug and get off the first front page news. 
And I ran around talking to the powers that be saying, no, no, wait, this, we could really use this. Right. Um, but like I said, they were just in a hurry to sweep it off the front page. And um, what happened at Tops, uh, like I said, for me, honestly, and for, I think for some black people, it really feels like, as, as tragic as it is, it feels like another day in black America. Mm-hmm. And uh, all, we, all the best we can do is hold our breath until it happens again. I hate to sound so pessimistic, but what there is to do for someone like me who does workshops and lectures talking to white people about race, what there is to do, I've got two choices. I can roll up in a ball and, you know. Just stay there. And stay there. Or I can keep doing what I do. And and that's that's what I'm choosing today. <laughs> Thank you for choosing that today, especially with us. Um, so let's talk about mm-hmm. racism. Okay. Uh, racism, obviously, it takes different forms. Uh, when you see the folks with the hoods on or carrying tiki torches, claiming that you cannot replace us, uh, we know what those people are about. Mm-hmm. They're very identifiable. Mm-hmm. But that covert racism, to me, that's the scarier part. That's the scarier thing because you may or may not recognize it. You may or may not, you know, figure out that this is exactly what's happening to you. Um, What can be done about the people in the hood and tiki torch camp Mm -hmm. and what can be done about the people who are in the covert sort of underlying Mm -hmm. racist ideology Mm -hmm. camp? Well, the the people in the hood and tiki torch camp, um, it's scary because we are supposed to be able to expect people in uniform to... Uh, protect us from that, whatever their feelings are. You know, I I don't care what your feelings are about black people. It's just wrong to drive a car. It's just wrong to drive a car into a crowd of people. Exactly. You know, and and you get arrested and you go to jail. And uh, we're supposed to be able to count on that uh, from law enforcement. But story after story has come out that, you know, the tiki torch and hood people are infiltrating our police. Our police, yeah. Right. The know. people who are supposed to protect us. Who are supposed us. to protect us, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, when, when I say, I, well, so I'll come back to that. And, uh, well, yeah, I was saying uh, to some people during a presentation the other day, um, hope for black people, hope is a gift that we give white people. Because okay. historically they have not earned it. And um, okay, you know, uh, we are you, we're asked to incidences like Tops Jefferson and the Tiki Torch people. We're asked to get up every day and believe in the American experiment. Mm-hmm. At the same time, knowing that the guardrails put in place may not work for us. I, a, a caught, toss of a coin. Mm-hmm. You call the police, they could shoot you or shoot the other guy. Right. Um, uh, something happens and the police get there and, you know, they could haul you away or the other guy. You know, the guardrails aren't, aren't there, aren't absolute for us. So the hope that we uh, wake up every morning and keep going with, it, it's a real, it's a gift. It's a gift to uh, white white. It's a gift to white America. Uh, the other part of your question was, how do we talk to, um, um, how do we talk to the settled people? Um, that's where I come in. <laughs> <laughs> I, st- I, I do workshops based on Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. And um, her premise in that book is that too much of the conversation about for white people, too much of the conversation about race is still about them. 
Mm. It is still about defending them, themselves, against being one of those tiki torch people. There's a right. good bad binary. You're either you're a good white person or you're one of those tiki torch people. And too much of of nice white people's conversation is about proving to black people and other non-white people that they are not one of the tiki torch people. Okay, so I get it. You're not one of the tiki torch people. Fine. You're a good person. Here's your sticker. Go. Okay. Mm -hmm. But um, when I'm driving to your house in the suburbs, you know, or when we're driving, <clears throat> when you and I are both driving through the suburbs, there's a greater likelihood that <clears throat> that I will be stopped than you. Mm -hmm. And so you go ahead and drive off and be a good person, be a good white person. And I'm still standing here uh, with this police officer going through my trunk, checking my license and la, 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 la. Who are you being in that? Not just what should you do. Who are you being? And that's a conversation. That's a much larger conversation for another hour, which I hope you'll have me <laughs> back for. I absolutely but will. We do race. Nobody wants to hear this, but racism is going to stop when white people stop being racist. And that's there isn't any more that black people need to do. It's not like, oh, if black people were just blah, 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 we would stop being so racist. Or if black people would do this, 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 then racism would be over. Racism is a white phenomenon. And that's why I do what I do. I realize, like, I, it's it's not to talk to black people. Anymore. I need to talk to white people. Somebody needs to talk to white people. Right. And that's uh, And that's what I do. Does teaching people how to be anti-racist or how to not be racist or how to be less racist mm -hmm. work? Again, hope is a gift that black people give to America. I have to believe it does. Mm -hmm. The alternative is the streets burning all day, every day. You know, and... Um, I I have uh, some, you know, I have some success stories. I do a three and a half hour workshop mm -hmm. and uh, I was just picking up steam before COVID and then COVID hit mm, <laughs> and, and nobody was interested in gathering in crowds of, you know, not to hear me, yes. you know, maybe uh, the who if they got back together <laughs> or something, but not to hear me. Uh, so I went online and I was doing a regular hour and a half a Zoom session on Sundays that you know I called Moving Beyond White Fertility or um, Beyond the Echo Chamber is what I call it. Uh, that's another thing. White people need to stop get, being among themselves talking about racism. You know, yes. it's like a bunch of 13-year-old boys with a stack of Playboy magazines thinking they now, they read them and talk. Now they know what there is. Now they, they know how to talk to girls. They know everything yeah. about everything. N no, <laughs> just no. First time they go talk to a girl and say something they learned out of that, they're going to get smacked. Right. You know, so there are two. Uh, that's uh, one quirk I have. There are too many white people who are in all white affinity groups talking about how to get over racism, and it you you just I don't I don't mean to down them all together, but you just you just can't do that. You know, you 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 need if you don't know anything about math, you don't get together with a bunch of other people who don't know anything about math. Grab a textbook and the rest of you follow it, figure it out. You go get a math teacher. <laughs> 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 it's not so hard. But um, anyway, so we were talking about talk, uh, talking to uh, white people. So I went online, and uh, on Sundays I was doing a regular thing. And surprise, surprise, I built up a huge audience from across the country. I'm not real tech savvy, so I wasn't smart enough to see ahead <laughs> that that would happen. So um, I have a huge uh, – I've had people from uh, Alaska, mm -hmm. Australia <laughs> – uh, Texas, New York, uh, Jersey. And, because um, you're fantastic? There's that. Because there are racists everywhere. Because, and uh, back to why did I start doing this? Because I believe that there are sincere white people who want to, who see what's happening with racism and they want to know what to do mm -hmm. and what to say and how to be a part of the solution. And they honestly just don't know how. Right. And I've, I, found, I saw that 
like I said, white people talking among themselves is just sends it around in circles and circles. And I found that white people needed a black person who has the patience for stupid questions, air quote, air quote, you know, um, but really under, understands that they're coming from a good place and they really do want to know. Right. And that's my audience. And that's why I attract so many people, too, because they really do. They get it. I'm coming from a good place. But I might and be a little you, rough around the edges. You can ask me anything, but I'm you know, I'm coming straight. Right. My people are getting shot and killed. I'm coming straight. It's time to talk. Right. No, we are we are we're past racism. In, intro to racism now. We're in one hundred two. Yeah. One hundred three. <laughs> and here's a story I wanted to tell. Um, there is a woman named Shelley, who is one of my regulars on on Sundays. I'm not doing them every Sunday anymore, but I do them occasionally on Sundays. And I can't remember where she's from. But she, the first time she came to one of my sessions online, uh, I I sent an email out about whatever I was doing the next week. This was a white woman. She sent me back an email saying, oh, no, you are just too harsh. You don't like white people. And, you know, if you changed your message, maybe more white people would listen to you. And I will, I'm never coming back. So I took her off my mailing list. I don't Mm -hmm. want to irritate her. The next Sunday, she was there. She was back. And the next Sunday, and the next Sunday, (laughs) (laughs) and the next Sunday. And she finally picked up the book, White Fragility, and she read it. And she is one of my most loyal followers. I mean, she gets on and she says, Nanette, you really opened my eyes. Um, she she tells me um she tells me about incidences that she had where before she wouldn't have known how to be as a white person. She knew something was wrong and that she should do something, but she just didn't know what. And she says, you know what, Nanette, last week you said blah, 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 blah. And that's what I did. And it all worked out. And this started from a woman who said, I, I, I'm never coming back. Right. So I do know it's possible. Reform is possible. It is. Change is possible. And I know that there are people out there who want to change it. And I'm here for them. I'm Bridget J. Paul Valenza. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. We're talking to lo- local author and teacher. Nanette Massey about racism and white fragility. When we say white fragility, mm-hmm. what do you mean? It means that um, it means that in conversations about race with white people, um, white people tend to. Well, Robin DiAngelo was she was Dr. Robin DiAngelo a white woman, sociologist, she was teaching uh, workshops having to do with race and racism, and she was finding that there are consistent patterns to how white people were uh, responding to the conversation about race. Mm-hmm. Um, so she wrote a book about it, you know, because <laughs> over 20 years she was seeing the same thing, same thing, same thing. And uh, the basic premise is that, um, again, too much of the conversation about race is about protecting white people's feelings and protecting their fragile self-image as good white people, people who aren't a part of that, whatever that is. Right. And uh, her and again, her premise is, you know, we need to get white people past um uh, being afraid, labeled a racist. We need to get white people past the fragility of being afraid to say the wrong thing. We need to get white people past the fragility of losing social position. We need to get people, white people past their fragile, uh, fragile grip on that mm-hmm. um, into authentic uh, conversations. Do you think part of that is driven by guilt? Yes. 
why so then? Why, you know, I mean, certainly we've all heard the, well, that happened in the past, but that, that wasn't my family. That wasn't, I didn't own slaves. Mm. I didn't, whatever, you know, I'm not personally responsible for that. Yet there, there's that immediate defense, mm-hmm. which would mean you're feeling guilty about right. that. Right, right, right. Um, guilt is a hard topic for me to talk about because I, uh, I know that a lot of critics of these kinds of conversations say that they are predicated on top of white guilt. And the truth is we have no use for white people being guilty. That is not our – we have no use whatsoever for guilt, for white people's guilt. That's not what this is about at all. Because guilt keeps you stuck in yourself. Right. Guilt keeps you stuck on, oh, my goodness, me, I'm so sorry. Your feelings. What can, what can I do so that I feel better? better? Mm-hmm. And then it's still about you. Right. And that's – we don't need that. That's not helpful. Um, 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 but at the same time, I, it's, I, it's hard to say to people, you know, you just shouldn't feel like that. You know, when my boyfriend left me three years later, I was still hurt and people were telling me, well, you should get over it. I was like, if there was a pill I could buy, <laughs> I would, you know, so I don't have a whole lot more to offer white people other than your guilt does not serve us. That's not what we want. I mean, and I we think need you to get over it because it's counterproductive to what we're trying to do. Certainly one has to acknowledge it. Yes. Acknowledge that it exists. Mm-hmm. Yes, I feel guilty. You might even examine why you feel guilty. But that also should not be a barrier to moving yourself forward, moving mm-hmm. conversations forward. Right. Um, and being able to to assist, mm-hmm. to be a good ally, mm-hmm. to help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one, I don't think, should ig- ignore things like that, mm-hmm. per se. Mm-hmm. But it also is, isn't a barrier. Yeah, I, w- I want to go back to that question. Um, you were talking about the whole set of people who say, well, my ancestors never owned slave- slaves, and my parents worked for everything they have. Um, one of the examples am, examples that I like to use is uh, 1960. Ooh, I want to say 64, when uh, I can't remember his name. A uh, black man was trying to enroll at Old Miss University. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a war veteran. Um, he was everything that. White America tells us if you do these things, you're in the club. Right. You know, and he went to he went to enroll at Ole Miss and the National Guard was called out. The governor was on the phone with the president. This is the there were 2000 people. I want to say there were three deaths. This is the might. There were the case had gone out. He went all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, "You have to let this man into this college." This is the might that the America that we get up, black people get up every morning and try to have hope about. This is the might that they put behind just one black man trying to enroll in college in 1964. Right. So what I say to what I say to white audiences is you know I always say a lot of my audiences are older. So I ask people how many of you were in college in the 1960s or 70 early 70s? They raise their hands and I tell them so what we're saying is the government made space for you, you know, unless you're top five in your class, mm-hmm. the government made space for so-so regular, I don't want to say mediocre, but that's where that comes to mind, mm. white people to have space in college and exclude competition, you know, the, the whole pool of competition right. of black people. So if you went to college in the 60s, you, as a white person, you were a beneficiary of affirmative action. Right. So so this isn't about who owns slaves or not. 
this is about your parents got a leg up at you know at something my parents didn't even didn't even it consider. wasn't even on their radar didn't consider it wasn't it. even on their radar right um so um um and that's this and that lives what i what i want why people understand is when you're talking to another black person in your age that lives in the conversation between the two of you you know what what wasn't what was made not available to them and their family and their back progeny as black person that lives in the conversation between the two of you and as a white person you're standing there just talking and you know and the black person's going you know, yeah, that yeah. that land your grandfather, you know, built that big business on. They stole that from my grandfather. Right, right. You know, and that that trauma and stays with you. And now you're standing here telling me, well, if you just act a different, talk if, different, if whatever. you just give back the land my grandfather, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you just give me one tenth of the value of that land, how about that? Right. You know, right. and that lives in the conversation and white people being back to white fragility, white people being too fragile to hear that for real mm -hmm. is what holds back authentic relationships and authentic conversations about race that would truly move things forward. How do you feel about reparations then? <sighs> wow, you opened it up. <laughs> Well, of course I did. <laughs> All right. So here's the thing. I, what's our time frame? <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I grew up, I grew up in the middle of school busing in the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, there was actually a court case here called Nyquist versus someone or other um, that, uh, uh, that mandated school integration. Uh, Nyquist versus Arthur. Arthur. Mm -hmm. All right. Smart people over here at NPR. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, so as a result of that, um, I got on the bus from the east side of Buffalo, and I was bused over to School 81 at uh, Delaware and Tacoma mm -hmm. for fourth grade. And then fifth grade, I was bused to City Honors. And... I got on a roll and I forgot the question. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Reparations. Reparations. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I was at City Honors, and I was in a population of black and white kids, where what we were hearing was, "You are smart. You are exceptional. You can do what you want." Uh, Everything's equal, mm. you know. I I I learned that Martin Luther King, um, there was slavery. Lincoln, in his good-heartedness, he freed the slaves. We disappeared till the 1950s and didn't do anything. Mm. And then uh, Martin Luther King came along and died for our sins. Now everything is equal, you know. Mm. So so I drank the Kool-Aid too, and I didn't realize that. I was two years old when Martin Luther King got shot. That's what my mother was watching on TV. Right. You know, she was watching that on what would have been CNN, just like we're watching the trials about the January 6th insurrection. That was as real and present for her as anything. Um, and But I was learning about it in history class. Mm -hmm. it, may as, it, seemed, it may as well have been Washington crossing the Delaware. Right. You know, and I was getting the Kool-Aid that it's all over. It's all done. White people used to do these things, but everything's equal now. And you are smart. You part of smart people, and you know, and if you just do what you're supposed to do, everything's gonna be great. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't until much much later in life, really, that I really started to read about uh, uh, white people. I really encourage you to pick up some history books. White people really don't understand. Like I said, the weight. And the resources in our society, from our government, from society pressure, blah, 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 that have been put towards 
white giving white people the advantage that they have and black people the disadvantage that we live in now. That was very much created and very deliberate. Um, so um, I do believe that um, if um, this person is at two, well, no, 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 I won't go there. Uh, bottom line, I do believe that the U.S. certainly owes for uh, its its treatment of non-white people historically. However, I would settle for white police to just stop shooting us mm. and for f- truly fair uh, public education. Truly fair. because When I say truly fair, what I mean is if these people are at one and these people are at negative three, to get up to two, these people are going to need one, and these people are going to need four. Right. And I'm sorry, that's fair. Right. That is fair. Because it brings everyone to right. at least a level yeah. playing field. Uh, but, like I said, but, you know, nobody's going to go for that. I know that. But I, w- I believe if we could just not, if we could, if black people could just have the security of those bumpers that are supposed to keep us safe, you know, um, we could have the security of knowing that when we deal with an officer of the law, you know, we're going to get a fair shake. If we right. could get that one thing. And then the other thing, really, really uh, uh, targeted public school education, if we could get those two things, we could do the rest of our, on our own. Mm-hmm. We could make up that negative that three. Negative we could percent. do it on our own if white, if the powers of white supremacy just got out of our way. If we could just get that, that's reparations enough for me. On my soapbox here. <laughs> That's okay, as long as it's a comfortable soapbox. <laughs> I want I want to mention my uh, web page real quick. Okay. Uh, NanetteDMassey.com. That's N-A-N-E-T-T-E-D-M-A-S-S-E-Y. And for those of you listening, I have done a lot of work with lots of progressive white people. I am really, I really, I really want to send out. I really want invitations from populations in Buffalo, white populations in Buffalo, who are still saying, well, my parents didn't own slaves. What are you talking about? You know? Right. So, you know, South Buffalo, I'm calling you out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, other suburbs that have, you know, like that one black neighbor. So they think that they're integrated. I want to talk to y'all. I want to talk to y'all. And I, inv- I encourage you to get in touch with me. What... Do you have to say to exhausted people of color, exhausted black people Mm -hmm. who are put in the position of of having to constantly have these conversations with white folks about racism and inequity and unfair practices? What is your advice to them? Wow. Okay. Um... I guess simply put, uh, one, take care of yourself first. You know, so what you need to do is just not be in this conversation or not be in this situation. Do that for yourself. Just do that. That's one. Two, you know, understand that we are all children of the same God. Mm-hmm. And um, these are people who are... They're working it out. They're it's, work. They're working it out. It's and, exhausting. And it is exhausting. One, like I said, take care of yourself. So if you just don't have it right now for this, mm-hmm. just go have you go have you some chamomile, <laughs> and just let these people be and accept them for who they are. And oh, so here's the other thing: there are people who want to be in this conversation. So those who don't, let them be. Let him be for now, mm-hmm. because you are exhausting all your energy on the wrong people. 
There are people who really do need you and who really do want to understand. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how. And they don't know they can come and talk to you. you right. stay, look for those people. And the people who it's not their time, let, let, let them be. Let them be. With any luck, the bumpers of society will handle them. <laughs> With any luck. <laughs> what would you say is the most difficult conversation you have had with someone about race? The most difficult. Um... The most difficult conversation I've had with people about race, surprisingly, isn't with the tiki torch sort of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, you know what? I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina for a little while. And I was taught, and, and at the time there was, a, there was a racial incident there involving the police. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow I caught up with a white police officer on Facebook, and uh, he he invited you know people to come meet him and talk with him. I said, "Yeah, let's have a conversation. Yeah, let's let's go to Starbucks and do this." Right. And <clears throat> he was, God bless him, he was so racist. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, okay, but. He was really, he really believed, you know, I treat all people equally and all of those things that they're saying about police, they don't understand, people don't understand. And then he would say something, then he would say, but you know, I have found that black people resist more frequently. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So what he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so what he didn't realize while he was telling me, you know, I treat all black people the same, all people the same. What he didn't realize was he walks into a situation, he sees a black person, and he's already automatically on heightened on alert. Alert. Yep. Yep. Okay. That's racism. Yeah. You know, if he had said there are certain characteristics of certain people where you can tell that this is going to be difficult. That's one thing. Right. You know, but he walks in and she's a black person and he's on high alert. It doesn't see that as racism. That That's it. The most difficult conversations that I have about race with white people have to do with uh, things that white people believe are intrinsic about black people. So for them to say it or acknowledge it is not racist. I see. Those are the people. And that was that was him. He just geez, he just said some of the most <laughs> racist thing. But he was he didn't realize he was coming from, well, black people are like this, 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 and that's why I have to such and such, such and such. Right. Nanette Messi, thank you so much. Uh, writer, facilitator, teaches on white fragility and racism. Thank you. We will definitely have you back. I would be glad to. Stay with us. best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. If Our Water Could Talk, Erie County Fair, two Frederick Law Olmsted documentaries, and so much more to watch. The very best of WNED-PBS, now available on YouTube. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Your thoughts and prayers 
are not enough. This is Dave Debo. In these early days of this program, we've brought you heartfelt conversations. But it's also going to take whites to release some control. If we're going to say Buffalo and Buffalo Strong and we're going to hashtag it, then what are we doing in action? Having a gun or access to a gun is not what led this shooter to pick the 14208 zip code. Twice this past week, such sentiment was actually taken to the halls of the U.S. Capitol. Just yesterday, in testimony before the House of Representatives, Zanetta Everhart spoke of her son, Zaire Goodman, who was shot in the neck by the top's gunman. The 18-year-old terrorist who stormed into my community armed with an AR-15 received a shotgun from his parents for his 16th birthday. For Zaire's 16th birthday, I bought him a few video games, some headphones, a pizza, and a cake. We are not the same. And two days earlier, before that, on Monday, Garnell Whitfield testified before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee and told them of the loss of his mother, Ruth, at the hands of the Topps gunman. To discuss all these issues is certainly one thing, but to bring these two voices of the community in their entirety from the U.S. Capitol, unedited, has as much value as really any discussion we could bring you. And so on this program, we're giving you fodder to talk about in future days. But let's also gather together to listen to their testimony from Washington, beginning with former Buffalo Fire Chief Garnell Whitfield. To the members of this uh, honorable body, uh, on behalf of all of the victims who were murdered or injured on May 14th and their families, we sincerely thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today. And though I will be uh, sharing with you some of my family's memories about my mother uh, and the devastation her her murder has wrought upon our family, uh, the truth is that I'm speaking on behalf of all of the victims and their families. Mrs. Ruth Whitfield was my mother. She was literally and figuratively the heartbeat of our family and my father's soulmate for 68 years. She was the person who held us together, probably just like your mothers did for your families. What I loved most about her was the way she loved her family unconditionally, sacrificing everything for us. She visited my father at the nursing home where he's lived for the past eight years almost every day, including on the day she was murdered, to ensure that he got the care that he needed from the nursing home and to supplement that care with their own personal and loving touch. Our lives are forever changed, forever damaged by an act of profound hate and evil. And nothing will ever take away the hurt, the pain, or the hole in our hearts. For her to be murdered, taken away from us by someone so full of hate, is impossible to understand and even harder to live with. But we're more than hurt. We're angry. We're mad as hell because this should have never happened. We're good citizens, good people. Uh, We believe in God. We trust in God. But this wasn't an act of God. This was an act of a person. And he did not act alone. He was radicalized by white supremacists. His anger and hatred were metastasized like a cancer by people with big microphones in high places screaming that black people were going to take away their jobs and opportunities. Every enforcement agency charged with protecting the homeland has conducted risk and threat analysis and determined that white supremacy is the number one threat to the homeland, and yet, Nothing has been done to mitigate or eradicate it. We're people of decency. We're taught to love even our enemies. But our enemies don't love us. So what are we supposed to do with all our anger and all of our pain? Do you expect us to continue to just forgive and forget over and over again? And what are you doing? You're elected to protect us, to protect our way of life. I ask every one of you to imagine the faces of your mothers as you look at mine and ask yourself, is there nothing that we can do? Is there nothing that you personally are willing to do to stop the cancer 
of white supremacy and the domestic terrorism, terrorism it inspires? Because if there is nothing, then, respectfully, senators, you should yield your positions of authority and influence to others that are willing to lead on this issue. The urgency of the moment demands no less. My mother's life mattered. My mother's life mattered. And your actions here today will tell us how much it matters to you. Thank you. Garnell Whitfield Jr.'s testimony before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday. Whitfield's mother, Ruth, died in the shootings. This is Buffalo What's Next, our daily look at the issues that spring from the racist shootings on Jefferson Avenue. Yesterday was Zaire Goodman's birthday. He's recovering after being shot in the neck during those shootings. His mother, Zanetta Everhart, spoke before the House Oversight Committee on his birthday yesterday. Thank you, Chairwoman. Uh, Zaire, my son Goodman, my son, or as I like to call him, the kid, was shot and injured by a domestic terrorist on Saturday, May 14, 2022, at the Topps Grocery Store where he was an employee in a historically black community on Jefferson Avenue in Buffalo, New York. Zaire, the kid, is now a 21-year-old man. He's pure joy. He's everything that is good in this world. And as I sit here before you today, um, I can hear my son telling me to stop being extra and get to the point. I was going to tell you all a bunch of fluffy, funny stories about Zaire, um, but I have, I have a message. So I'll get to the point. As Director of Diversity and Inclusion with New York State Senator Tim Kennedy's office, stories of gun violence and racism are all too familiar, but now these stories are Zaire's stories. These problems literally knocked on my front door. These are issues that as a country we do not like to openly discuss. Domestic terrorism exists in this country for three reasons. America is inherently violent. This is who we are as a nation. The very existence of this country was founded on violence, hate, and racism, with the near annihilation of my native brothers and sisters. My ancestors brought to America through the slave trade were the first currency of America. Let me say that again for the people in the back. My ancestors, the first currency of America, were stripped of their heritage and culture, separated from their families, bargained for, or auction blocks, sold, beaten, raped, and lynched. Yet I continuously hear after every mass shooting that this is not who we are as Americans and as a nation. Hear me clearly. This is exactly who we are. Education. Majority of what I have learned about African-American history, I did not learn until I went to college and I had to choose those classes. Why is that? Why is African-American history not a part of American history? African-Americans built this country from the ground up. My ancestors' blood is embedded in the soil. We have to change the curriculum in schools across the country so that we may adequately educate our children. Reading about history is crucial to the future of this country. Learning about other cultures, ethnicities, and religions in schools should not be something that is up for debate. We cannot continue to whitewash education, creating generations of children to believe that one race of people are better than the other. Our differences should make us curious, not angry. At the end of the day, I bleed, you bleed. We are all human. That awful day that will now be a part of the history books, hopefully, let us not forget to add that horrific day to the curriculum that we teach our children. Guns. The 18-year-old terrorist who stormed into my community armed with an AR-15, killing 10 people and injuring three others, received a shotgun from his parents for his 16th birthday. For Zaire's 16th birthday, I bought him a few video games, some headphones, a pizza, and a cake. We are not the same. How and why? And what in the world is wrong with this country? Children should not be armed with weapons, Parents who provide their children with guns should be held accountable. Lawmakers who continuously allow these mass shootings to continue by not passing stricter gun laws should be voted out. 
To the lawmakers who feel that we do not need stricter gun laws, let me paint a picture for you. My son, Zaire, has a hole in the right side of his neck, two on his back, and another on his left leg, caused by an exploding bullet from an AR-15. As I clean his wounds, I can feel pieces of that bullet in his back. Shrapnel will be left inside of his body for the rest of his life. Now I want you to picture that exact scenario for one of your children. This should not be your story or mine. As an elected official, it is your duty to draft legislation that protects Zaire and all of the children and citizens in this country. Common sense gun laws are not about your personal feelings or beliefs. You are elected because you have been chosen and are trusted to protect us. But let me say to you here today, I do not feel protected. No citizen needs an AR-15. These weapons are designed to do the most harm in the least amount of time. And on Saturday, May 14th, it took a domestic terrorist just two minutes to shoot and kill 10 people and injure three others. If after hearing from me and the other people testifying here today does not move you to act on gun laws, I invite you to my home to help me clean Zaire's wounds so that you may see up close the damage that has been caused to my son and to my community. To the families of Ruth Whitfield, Pearl Young, Catherine Massey, Hayward Patterson, Celestine Cheney, Geraldine Talley, Aaron Salter, Andre McNeil, Marcus Morrison, and Roberta Drury, I promise that their deaths will not be in vain. Zaire and I promise to use our voice to lift their names and we will carry their spirit with us as we embark on this journey to create change. I know that their collective souls watched out for Zaire that day and I am eternally grateful to them for that. To the east side of Buffalo, I love you. I'm speaking directly to my people, to my hood. From Bailey to Broadway, to Kensington, to Fillmore, to Delavan, to Jefferson, and every street in between. Just like the potholes that we want filled in, yes, I keep it real. Together, we will continue to fill those streets with love. No matter what people say about the east side of Buffalo, we will not be broken. I was born there, raised there. I raised my son there, I still live there and I do the majority of my professional work on the east side of Buffalo. I vow to you today that everywhere I go, I will make sure that the people hear the real stories of our people. For too long, our community has been neglected and starved of the resources that we so greatly need. I promise that I will not stop pushing for more resources to be funneled into the east side of Buffalo. Each and every person that lives within that community, we are family. Not a perfect community, but I know that we are love to the greater Buffalo area, to everyone from around the country and the world who have reached out and loved on us. On behalf of Zaire, Zaire's father, Damian Goodman, my mother, my father, my sisters, my brothers, and myself, we thank you. We thank you for all of your thoughts and your prayers. Thank you for all of the love and support you have shown us during this difficult time. But I also say to you today, with a heart full from the outpouring of love that you also freely gave us. Your thoughts and prayers are not enough. We need you to stand with us in the days, weeks, months, and years to come and be ready to go to work and help us to create the change that this country so desperately needs. And I will end with a quote from Charles Bloom in his book, The Devil We Know. Race as we have come to understand it is a fiction, but racism as we have come to live it is a fact. The point here is not to impose a new racial hierarchy, but to remove an existing one. After centuries of waiting for white majorities to overturn white supremacy, it is to me that it has fallen to black people to do it themselves, and I stand at the ready. Zaire, this is for you, kid. Happy birthday. Sonetta Everhart speaking before the U.S. House of Representatives Oversight Committee yesterday. And that's this episode of Buffalo What's Next. It's a program that unapologetically confronts the reasons why the May 14th mass shootings occurred in Buffalo and what role each of us can play in solving the problems that caused it. If you missed any part of the program today, including earlier conversations with Harper Bishop of Push Buffalo, and author Nanette Massey, who teaches on white fragility. Remember, this program is a podcast. You can certainly subscribe. You can listen online at wbfo.org 
or you can hear it again on air each evening at 9 p.m. We'll be back with more tomorrow. That's our promise to you at WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. Thanks for listening.